Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Kings. We will be looking at several passages therein, but you can start in 1 Kings chapter 1. The title of my sermon tonight is The Good News of 1 and 2 Kings. Upon hearing this title, those of you familiar with the books of First and Second Kings may be wondering whether or not I've actually read First and Second Kings. When you hear the word, the phrase, good news, we typically think of something positive. We think of some sort of bestowing of information that carries a favorable outcome or a blessing or a favor upon the one who hears it. When we read the books of First and Second Kings, we see the story of a nation decline and fall. By all accounts, it's not exactly what we think when we think good news. When you read First and Second Kings, this doesn't really look like good news to the nation of Israel. For how can there be good news in a story of decline, division, and the ultimate fall of a nation? Last week, Cody Nygaard preached on 1 and 2 Samuel, and he made the point in his sermon that 1 and 2 Samuel is about a prophet, a priest, and a king. In 1 and 2 Kings, we see the nation of Israel, and it's a people that ignores the prophets. It's a people who neglect the priest in favor of idolatry, and it's a line of kings that are consumed by their wickedness. By all accounts, First and Second Kings appears to be a tragedy, not good news. And like most tragedies, First and Second Kings begins with grandeur. The powerful king Solomon is coronated begins with grandeur, but it ends with calamity and the destruction of Jerusalem. It begins with a coronation and it ends with the destruction of a city and the conquering of a city. The books of First and Second Kings are characterized by the rise, the fall, and the collapse of the kingdom of Israel. Now, the first thing that comes with understanding a book or any book, but particularly books of the Bible, is understanding the audience to whom it's written. Now, 1st and 2nd Kings is written to the people of Israel in Babylonian exile. It's written to the people of Israel in Babylonian exile. And undergirding the book of Kings is, are two major questions. There are two major questions that underlie this whole book. The first is what happened and the second is, is God still faithful to his promise? So what happened? How did the nation of Israel go from a flourishing nation living in God's promised land under the King David with the promise of a king to rule on David's throne forever, that they would have a man on the throne forever? And this is what they know. This is what, where they came from. But where they're at is in exile. 
being ruled by the Babylonians. And so the book answers the question, what happened? How did we get from here to there? How did we get from grandeur to calamity? How did the nation go from worshiping God and living in the promised land to being in exile, ruled by foreigners? Are the promises of God still valid to a people who have turned, largely turned away from him? See, exile, the exile, we'll, find, we'll see through the book of Kings, the exile is the punishment for the people and the king's unfaithfulness to God. It's the punishment for their idolatry. And so is God still faithful to his promise to the people of Israel? The promise that they will be a great nation. The promise that a king will rule on David's throne forever. Is God still faithful to his promises to a people in exile? And I think in the writing of this book, these are two questions kind of serve as the foundation. What happened and is God still faithful? And we'll see the first question is very clearly answered in the book of Kings. We see what happened. The people are asking, the people in exile are asking, what happened? And through the book of Kings, the author answers, what happened? You turned from God and you worshiped false idols. That's what happened. The second question is going to persist through the entire second half of the Old Testament. So much the second portion of the old, the second half of the Old Testament is concerned with the question, is God still faithful to his people? Tonight, we're gonna cover the books of First and Second Kings, two books divided in, in our Bibles, but actually um, originally written as, as one book along with First and Second Samuel. So the division here is somewhat man-made. Uh, originally in the Hebrew Bible, these were one books, one book um, going from 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Kings. Uh, but we divide them, 1 and 2 Samuel, that Cody covered last week, and 1 and 2 Kings. So we're going to go over 1 and 2 Kings. And we'll begin with a short overview and we'll end with four key takeaways. So the book of 1 and 2 Kings has four major sections. And really, if you want to get even broader, the whole section of 1 Kings is about decline, and the whole section of 2 Kings is about fall. But broken up in there are four major sections. The first section is the life of Solomon. We see that from 1 Kings 1 through 12. Solomon is the one who takes the place of David to rule on the throne. He is the promised king to succeed, or succeed after David. And Solomon, his rule is marked by wisdom. We see in 1 Kings chapter 3. It's marked by the building of the temple. We'll see in 1 Kings chapter 6. But it's also marked by idolatry. Solomon had over 700 wives. It's marked by extreme wealth. And ultimately, it's marked by Solomon's apostasy and idolatry as he begins to marry women from foreign nations and begins to worship their gods and, and build temples to their gods. 
So Solomon is an example of a king who at some times appeared to be good and right and wise in his ways and at other times turned from, turned from God and began to worship other gods. And as a result of Solomon worshiping other gods, we see the nation of Israel split, and that's the second section uh, of the books of Kings, is the split of the kingdom. This goes from 1 Kings chapter 12 through, through 15. The 10, 10 tribes, and after, after Solomon, after Solomon's rule, comes Rehoboam. And the 10 tribes in the north rebel against Rehoboam. And they follow a warrior, a warrior leader named Jeroboam, and he becomes the king of the northern kingdom, and the north and the south split. And so the ten tribes follow Jeroboam in the north, and only two tribes remain faithful to the kingship line of David in the south. The, the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Benjamin remain loyal to the throne of David. And the next section covers the kings and the prophets. This goes from... 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 13. We'll see this section marked by prophets in both the northern and southern kingdoms, most notably Elijah and Elisha. And it's marked by the rule of wicked kings. The kings in the north, well, the kings in the south, there were 20 kings in total. Twelve of them were wicked, eight of them followed God. The kings in the north, every single one was wicked. And so this section is marked by prophets who bring the word of God and are the mouthpiece of God, and kings who are, for the most part, wicked and evil and do what is right in their own eyes. Don't follow the commands of God. And the final section, the closing section of the book, is the fall of Israel and the fall of Judah. You could count this as a 4A and 4B if you wanted to. Uh, 4A would be the fall of Israel to, to the nation of Assyria, and 4B would be the fall of Judah to Babylon. But this goes from 2 Kings 17 through the end of the book. So we see the rise, the fall, and the collapse of a kingdom overviewed in the book of Kings. But there's also hope in the book of Kings, even if at times it may feel like a glimmer. We see God is still faithful. God's word remains faithful, and God is steadfast in his love for his people. And so we see four theological themes, four key themes, four key takeaways for us. And that's what I want to spend the most of our time talking about, is what is, what is the book of Kings for us? How does the books of Kings apply to the life of us today? Well, the first key theme is the worship of God is greater than any idol. The first theme, the worship of God is greater than the worship of any idol. We see throughout the book of Kings, there's a contrast of power between worship of God and idolatry. It's a running theme, worship versus idolatry. Continually, we see the point proven that worshiping God is better, is more powerful, more true than worshiping any idol. 
We see this in the life of Solomon. He turns away from God. He begins to worship foreign gods, and as a result, there is judgment brought upon him. As a result, the, the nation is split. We see this with Jeroboam, the one, the one who was the warrior leader who, who rebelled against Rehoboam and split the kingdom in two. When Jeroboam becomes king, he sets up two golden calves, and he says, these are your gods. These are your gods who led you out of Egypt, these two golden calves. Now, does that sound familiar? It should. If you remember from the book of Exodus, what was it that Aaron did at the bottom of the mountain? He created a golden calf for the people to worship. See, Jeroboam set himself up as if, as if he was Moses, leading the people out of the oppressive rule of Rehoboam. He leads, and the ten tribes follow him. But it turns out, Jeroboam wasn't Moses, Jeroboam was Aaron. And he set up two golden calves, two idols to be worshipped. And we'll see throughout the book of Kings that there's a continual line of every wicked king. It says, of, of every wicked king, it says, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam. Of each wicked king, it goes through in, in detail and says, he walked in the way of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is set, set aside as, a, as an example of, of, of the wicked king because of the way he worshipped and set up the worship of, of false idols. One of the most famous stories we see in the book of Kings is, is about the God of Israel versus the God, the false God of Baal, the Canaanite God of Baal. And in this story, Elijah, the prophet Elijah, on behalf of God, brings down fire. And the prophets of Baal attempt to call down fire on their God, and nothing. Elijah even goes so far as to mock the prophets of Baal. He says, well, maybe, maybe Baal's asleep. We see a running theme of God being more powerful than the false idols, right? God is more powerful than the false idols. One of the biggest idols through the book of Kings is not a golden calf or Baal, but it's the king's worship of themselves, the king's pride and idolatry and desire for wealth, desire for power grows to such a point that they've made an idol out of themselves. They wanted to elevate themselves to the status of God. They want to elevate their own power, their own wealth. Leads us to the second key theme. So first theme, the worship of God is greater than the worship of any idol. The second theme, God's commandments is greater than the way of the king's. God's commandments are greater than the ways of the kings. There's a running theme through the book of Kings that as the kings go, so go the nations. So goes the nation of Israel. When the kings are wicked, the people are wicked. When the kings turn from God and follow idols, the people turn from God and follow idols. Now there were some, some kings that followed God. 
in the southern kingdom, in Judah. And they made reforms. And they tried to be right with God. And they tried to follow God's commands. And you see those reforms take place. And the people follow the way of their kings. But the theme is, as the kings go, so goes the nation. Because the kings are primarily, in the book of Kings, the kings are primarily responsible for upholding the covenant with God. The kings are the ones who are primarily responsible for upholding the covenant with God. So as the kings go, so go the nations. And we see this played out in the passage we read at the beginning. In 1 Kings 9. Verse four through seven, it says, and as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father walked with integrity of your heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from me, if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name, and I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. So God's promise to Solomon and the promise to the line of the kings the kings being primarily responsible for upholding the covenant. God's promise to them is if you follow my commands, then I will bless your, I will bless your line. I will bless your kingdom. But if you turn from me and go which way seems right to you, if you turn from me to do what is wise in your own eyes, if you turn from God, Turn to foreign gods, then I will destroy Israel. And that's God's promise to Solomon. But we see the kings do just that. Solomon does just that. Solomon turns from God and begins worshiping other gods. Solomon turns from, from the Lord the God of Israel begins worshiping the gods of neighboring countries, the gods of the wives he marries. And the wives he marries wrongly. And we see what is, well, what is God's way for the kings? How do we know what God would have the kings do? Well, if you will, turn, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And we'll see God makes it clear that he has laws concerning his kings. We see Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. It says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. 
and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself an excessive silver and gold. And what does Solomon do? Almost the exact opposite. Remember, Solomon's kingdom is marked by, yes, wisdom. Yes, the building of temple, the temple. Then we get to chapters 9, 10, 11 of 1 Kings, and we see Solomon's rule is marked by 700 wives, an extraordinary amount of wealth and military power, and ultimately, the worship of other gods. All of those things outlined in Deuteronomy 17 of what God says his king should do, Solomon turns from. And so we see the way of God set, up, set out that the people should not be like the other nations. The nation of Israel should not be like the other nations. But the way of God is set apart from that. And God has a set apart standard for his people of how their kings should rule. And what does Solomon do? He goes and mirrors his kingdom after the other nations. He stores excessive wealth. He has an excessive amount of wives. And he, re he relies too heavily on his military power. And ultimately... He worships other gods. Everything list, each of those things being listed in Deuteronomy as a thing that the kings should not do, must not do, we see emphasized. The first Kings emphasizes as something that Solomon does. And so the way of the kings goes against the way of God. And as I said earlier, as, as the kings go, so goes the nations. So not only is Solomon relying on his own strength, but his, the nation is demonstrably worse because of it. Because he's following after, because Solomon's doing things his way, because the kings do things their way, the nation is way worse off than if they were to do things God's way and do things the way that God sets out for them. Throughout the book of Kings, we see two kings held up as examples. One is an example of doing things God's way, of following God's commands, and that's King David. The second king is used throughout the book of Kings as one who disregards God's way and does what is wicked in the eyes of God, and that's Jeroboam. And we see throughout the whole, throughout first and second Kings, these are two examples. David honored God. David sought to build a kingdom for God. And Jeroboam disregarded God, disregarded the temple, and upheld and set up two golden calves to be worshipped. So David is used as, as one after God's own heart that should be an example of what a godly leader should be. One who follows the way of God. Jeroboam is one does what is right in his own eyes and what is wicked before God. And then the third, the third theme is God is still faithful to his promises even in his judgment. God is still faithful to his promises even in his judgment. 
you remember that passage in 1 Kings chapter 9, God promises to Solomon that if you turn away, I will rip this nation out from under you. And we see that happen. Not only does God split the kingdom under Solomon, but God ultimately judges the nation of Israel through the exile, through the outside empires coming in and conquering the nation, conquering Judah in the south and conquering Israel in the north. And then you have a line of kings, the wicked line of kings, turn from God's word, but God keeps his word alive through the prophets. And God keeps his promises alive through the prophets. And in the judgment of the wicked kings, we see the exile. But even in the exile, God is merciful to his people and he is faithful to his promise. See, exile does not equal total destruction. The exile was not the total destruction of the people of Israel. And God actually keeps the line of David intact while the nation of Israel are subject to a foreign empire. And so what looks to be the complete ending of an empire, God actually keeps alive. God actually keeps alive. To this point, this is the news of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. This is the news. This is the story. These are the themes. This is, what, this is what's true about God. This is what's true about his righteous judgment of wickedness. This is what's true of a people who turn from him and worship false gods. It doesn't necessarily feel good yet, does it? We see a promise that God will judge unrighteousness, and we see a people who are unrighteous. We see whispers of God holding on to his, holding on to his covenant and keeping his covenant alive, keeping the line of David alive. The overarching story feels, feels glim, feels grim. But if you look at your Bible, from the start of 1 Kings to the end of 2 Kings, it's about right here, about this much. If God wasn't faithful to his people, we wouldn't have this whole chunk of the Bible because the story would have ended. Nebuchadnezzar would have come in and slaughtered the people. There would have been no exile. There would have only been destruction. There would be no line of David. There would only be destruction if God wasn't faithful to his people. Even in judgment, God is faithful to his people. There is even mercy in exile. And although the Kings is a story of a people who have lost their way, there is still mercy and there is still a hope for those people. And God's promise is not lost in this time. The nation of Israel is scattered. The northern king kingdom conquered by Assyria. The southern kingdom conquered by Babylon. And they are scattered. They are in exile. But the promise is not dead. 
because even in exile, God has mercy. There was no total obliteration of the people. And God holds on to his people and holds his covenant fast in allowing his people to endure, even in exile. And the exile being part of the judgment of God, part of God's judgment against the people, but he does not wipe them off the face of the earth. We see the book of Kings, we see God's judgment. We see wickedness. But there is still mercy. God still has mercy. God is still faithful. And every king failed. Ultimately, every king failed. Every king was wicked. Every king in the, in the, in the north was wicked. And the story of kings is largely about wicked kings and God's judgment on them. And so at this point, it feels like, well, what about that, what about that king? What about that king that's going to live on David's throne and rule on David's throne forever? Because David's line ends the book of, at the end of 2 Kings. There, is no, there was no king after the last king in 2 Kings. So the people reading this think, where is our king? Where is the promised king? The line of David is actually the longest, the longest line, single family dynasty. It's the longest single family dynasty in all of human history. But 2 Kings comes to a close and we see there is no king over Israel. And Israel is conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. And so what's the good news? The good news is we have the whole rest of the Bible. And we see kings as a highlight of God's judgment, a highlight of human wickedness. But it also fits within the greater redemptive history of the Bible. It's within the greater redemptive history of the Bible, and the story is not over. The story doesn't end with Israel being captured. The, the, the grand scope of the Bible, the grand scope of redemption and redemptive history does not end with Babylon. And all the kings of Israel were wicked, yes, but we know the good news that we have as Christians sitting here today is we know that Jesus is the only king that will reign forever. Point number four, Jesus is the only king that's going to reign forever. What does kings show us about kingship? Is that all the kings fall short. David, a man after, after God's own heart, a symbol of what a righteous king was, was still a sinner, still fell short. Solomon, a man bestowed with great wisdom, built the temple to God, he fell short. And the kingdom splits, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, wicked kings, and all the wicked kings were self-absorbed. They didn't worship God, they worshiped themselves. They exchanged what was true about God for a lie. 
Instead of living and leading to glorify God and exalt him, they saw only to glorify themselves and pursue their own enjoyment. The kings were a prideful and wicked line of kings who considered themselves higher than they considered God or his commandments. But we have a king in Jesus who perfectly embodies all humility. Who in Philippians chapter two says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. And God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess. Jesus is the only king who will reign on the throne of David forever. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. I don't know when the last time you looked at a globe or a map was, but Babylon is gone. And Assyria has been wiped out. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. And you know what? Nebuchadnezzar's tomb is, is, is not empty. But our king's tomb is empty. And our king reigns forever. And all the failed wicked kings of Israel have perished. And every king that failed is gone. It's but a memory. But our king is alive And he lives forever and he reigns and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And every earthly king falls short of comparing to him. Every wicked king is judged by him. And all who are faithful will bow down before him. As Jesus is the only one who is worthy of our worship. We take one thing away we take one thing away from kings, would it be the warning and the promise that Jesus is the only thing that is worthy of our worship. That's a promise to those who worship him rightly. That he is worthy of all things. He is worthy of our worship. And that's a warning to those who do not worship him rightly, to those who worship false gods, to those who have idols in their own lives, that all of those things will fall short. Every idol will fall short. But Jesus is the only one who is worthy of our worship. That the root sin of all of the kings was worshiping something other than the true God. Don't let that be true of us. Don't let that be true of our own lives. Don't let it be said of us that we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. But rather, let's worship the one true king who sits on David's throne forever. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for the books of the kings, and at times very difficult books of the Bible to, un- to understand, very difficult books of the Bible to read. 
God, but I thank you that the story does not end at the end of 2 Kings. That we have hope. And we have, we know that you are faithful to your promise. God, and we thank you for sending your son as the one true king who sits on the throne of David forever. God, let him be the object of our worship. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.